Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate kicks off a new eight-week miniseries with our old friend Justin Bankston of South by Southwest, We Love Rock Docs. The first episode features Nate and Justin discussing Les Blank's long, unreleased documentary about Leon Russell, A Poem is a Naked Person. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're kicking off the new mini series, We Love Rock Docs. And we're welcoming back our old friend of the show, Justin Bankston, whom you might remember from our two seasons about Mike Judge's Tales of the Tour Bus. Justin, welcome. Nate, I'm so stoked to be back and nerding out about visible rock and roll stuff. Very happy to have you. And so the first movie we're going to do is Les Blank's film. A Poem is a Naked Person about Leon Russell. Why did you want to pick this movie? Well, I'm kind of a huge fan of Les Blank and his movies because because I'm a huge fan of rock and roll documentaries. And because of that, I've become so sort of, you know, inundated with the format of the rock and roll documentary. And Les's films are just like an insanely different approach to like well anything that you normally watch but especially to a rock doc and i mean really he was making these most of these films before rock docs were a thing that we you know are used to and talked about a lot yeah absolutely he's he's a true filmmaker like after years of basically vh1 behind the music and talking heads to see one of his movies it's a film it's beautifully shot it's in beautiful 70s 35 millimeter color it's not garish it's that really rich understated 70s uh, film stock and this movie in particular is fascinating because it was filmed produced and edited and finished in 1974 but it didn't come out for 41 years it wasn't officially released until 2015 because of les blank's son herod um who was really dogged about getting the permission from Leon Russell to put the movie out. What do you know about that whole drama? Well, it's really fascinating. And it actually, it kind of comes out when you have watched a number of Les's films and you watch Naked Person. This is like an entirely different situation for Les Blank. He normally gets an idea gets a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, goes somewhere in the middle of nowhere and films the people there and films the music they're playing. Uh, 
and this this was a commission. This like Leon and uh, Denman or whatever his name is. Denny Cordell. Yeah, Denny Cordell reached out to him and said, "Hey, we want to make a movie about Leon Russell, uh, and we like what we've seen of your stuff. We'll pay you to do it, and you can come out here." Uh, and we'll set you up with uh, editing station and gear, and we'll pay for your film. And so it was a totally unique setup for Les, who was used to like just scraping money out of grants and whatever, and going and filming these films and putting them together any way he wanted. Uh, and these guys just gave him some money and then let him do whatever he wanted, and that was cool. And he also got to work while he was there on editing some of his other films that he was working on at the time, Hot Pepper and Dry Wood, which are both gorgeous. So this is a whole different thing for him. A, he's got these people who are giving him money because they want him to film something, but they're also giving him full-on creative control. But he's, filming, he's in this entirely different environment. It's like Leon Russell is a current active rock star at the time, and that is entirely different from anything that Les has been a part of. And you kind of get the feeling watching the movie that he kind of thinks it's bullshit a little bit. Just and a he, little bit. And he kind of shows that in some of the ways he puts the movie together. And I think Leon had a very negative reaction to that. And I honestly don't blame him. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. And also Denny Cordell, who had been Joe Cocker's manager and together with Leon Russell founded Shelter Records, which put out a bunch of records. Freddie King discovered Tom Petty, but they had a nasty falling out right around 1974, 75. And so Les Blank went away thinking the film had been approved. And it seems like Cordell was his champion. And then when Cordell and, and Russell split. Russell got the rights to the film and just put it, you know, in in the circular file and buried it for decades. Blank could show it in non-commercial settings if he was present. So, you know, it's like Jerry Lewis's movie about the clown in the concentration camp or whatever. There's a few films I know of where the filmmaker can show it if they're there, and otherwise it's it's un, you know, un, un, un displayed. But in 2015, it came back at South by Southwest, right? Yeah, we premiered it at South by, and I think, you know, we had had a, from what I understand, somewhat of a relationship with Harold, who was doing all this work to to bring his father's work to light and to sort of make sure that it, you know, that, that people could get access to it. And it's still honestly pretty hard to get access to these films. Uh, by far the best way is to join the Criterion channel, and they've got almost all of it. But, you know... So he kept he was getting certain films like some of the the finest ones like Chulas Fronteras remastered and re-released on DVD and that kind of thing, uh, and so when he was able to get Leon on board with doing that with a poem as a naked person, uh, he premiered it at South by Southwest because music films are obviously you know a big part of our film festival. Yeah, absolutely, and. Let's go into the Leon Russell, because from our perspective in 2021, particularly if you're a younger fan, it's really hard to grasp how big Leon Russell was at the time, because he had just come off of a tour with Joe Cocker, who was enormous at the time. That was a 
I think a triple live album, the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour and a movie. And I couldn't find anything about how successful the movie was, but it was pretty successful. It came out a couple years after Woodstock and Joe Cocker, of course, had stolen the show at Woodstock. And there was this phenomenon where um, a, a group of California musicians or really Oklahoma and Louisiana musicians who'd gone to California hooked up with a group called Delaney and Bonnie. And then they hooked up with Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Joe Cocker, and Leon Russell was one of these guys. And they kind of got the Beatles shine on them. And this Mad Dogs and Englishman documentary was really big. And Leon Russell gets credited on the poster. You know, Joe Cocker is on the poster with his name. And Leon Russell is in the lower left, billed as the master of space and time. And, you know, he's got the long gray hair and the beard and the big top hat. And he was just really king rock star at that moment. I mean, there was a split, obviously, between the younger and older folks. Jimmy Page was the king for the 14-year-olds, but for the 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds, Leon Russell was was the king of rock and roll for a couple of years there. He had three gold albums in a row. And this is a guy who has a really unusual singing voice, and he had a top 11 single. It didn't quite go top 10 with Tightrope. So at the time, Les Blank is working with him. It's definitely a rock and roll circus, and Les Blank catches a lot of that. You can tell Les Blank is really fascinated with the groupies. But let me go through Russell's career a little bit because it's just incredible. This is the guy who started out um, when he was 14 years old in Tulsa playing with J.J. Kale, who also goes on to be famous in a band called the Starlighters. But Steph tells me it's time to cue our first song, so I'll do it. This is Leon Russell doing a medley of his hit Tightrope and the staple singer's song, I'll Take You There. This is from the movie of Home as a Naked Person, live in New Orleans, Leon Russell, Tightrope. I said, I'm putting, I said, I'm putting on a little show for you to see. And I said, I'll put on a show for you if you'll put on a show for me. And that was the tightrope, I'll Take You There medley uh, that Leon Russell did in New Orleans and Les Blank captured on film. And like I was saying, he starts out when he's 14, 1956, in a band in Tulsa with J.J. Kale. He very quickly moves on to Los Angeles, where he hooks up with James Burton, the legendary James Burton who led Elvis's TCB band. At the time, James Burton, though, was working with Ricky Nelson. And so Leon somehow signs on to pay Burton to give him guitar lessons and parlays that into a gig playing on Ricky Nelson records. And so he's just obviously a very talented cat. And and it's not like a lightning quick thing. He doesn't instantly become the king of the L.A. session men. But as the Wrecking Crew sort of gathered around Phil Spector and Brian Wilson and Terry Milcher and those other producers that were working in L.A., Leon becomes one of the chief guys. And so he plays on a number of Crystals records for Phil Spector. He played on Mr. Tambourine Man, although the, the piano is really hard to hear on that. He played on Pet Sounds. He played on Frank Sinatra songs. And amusingly... Uh, he was kind of Snuff Garrett's right-hand man for the entire improbable Gary Lewis and the Playboys run. That's Jerry Lewis's son, who, and I just found this out today, so I got to share it, had seven top ten hits 
uh, right out of the gate, one after the other. The only other band to ever do that was Eleven Spoonful. So I don't know. Did you do any Gary Lewis and the Playboys research listening for this? I actually did not listen to Gary Lewis and the Playboys for this. You, you're, missing did, you're missing I, out. You're missing. I will go check it out. I'm I'm fascinated. I definitely went back and revisited a bunch of. Uh, you know, Wrecking Crew stuff and listened through to the Beach Boys records, which I kind of do anyway. Uh, but yeah, the, the the whole Wrecking Crew thing, you know, as you know, I'm a nerd about studio bands. So anybody who's in the Wrecking Crew is like a hero for life just right there, just for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And and Leon was, you know, one of the top guys on the scene. And then he goes on and has this interesting project with a guy named Mark Benno, the Asylum Choir. And they put out an album in 1968, which is very sort of pop psychedelic. There were a number of groups in L.A. around that time. Gary Usher had Sagittarius and um, Kurt Betcher, who produced the association, had a project called Millennium. And there was a project that called Moon that um, the guy, David Marks, who was the original second guitarist in the Beach Boys, was doing. And Asylum Choir was in that same vein of just dudes in L.A. who were given money to make weird albums. And so there's a couple of good out Asylum Choir albums. Then he gets in with Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, which is this legendary band. I mean, you know, bassist Carl Radel, drummer Jim Gordon. You got uh, Bobby Keys on saxophone, Jim Price on trumpet. Basically, this group of guys that more or less gets swiped by Eric Clapton and George Harrison to, you know, become Derek and the Dominoes and and uh, to record All Things Must Pass. Bobby Keys obviously goes on and Jim Price goes on to play with the Rolling Stones. Jim Keltner's in that mix as well. He plays on All Things Must Pass. Leon doesn't play on All Things Must Pass, but he plays on the first two Delaney and Bonnie and Friends albums, but he does go to the UK. That's where he hooks up with Denny Cordell. That's where he gets pulled into Joe Cocker's second album, plays keyboards on that with Cocker's band, the Grease Band, and gets a couple of songs placed on that. Um, Delta Lady was was a big one, and uh, Little Friends, I think, was the other one that he gets on that. But from there, he um, gets this opportunity. The Grease Band falls apart or quits Joe Cocker, and Denny Cordell books this massive tour on very short notice. Leon Russell assembles a 20-piece band, has Carl Rader, Jim Gordon, Jim Keltner, uh, Rita Coolidge is is in there. Just this epic show. They do this epic tour, epic movie, epic album, big, big, big. Um, and then then he's <clears throat> got solo albums coming out. Uh, Song for You isn't a hit single for him, but it's covered by Donny Hathaway and Joe Cocker does a version. And tons of people are doing that. He has his first solo album is Leon Russell. I think that went gold. Second one, Leon Russell and the Shelter People. Also goes gold. The third one, Carney, um, has a top 11 single, like I said, and goes gold. So he is just hot, hot, hot at this point when this uh, movie comes out. So that's my summary of Leon. Any any highlights I left out? I want to just go back to – I think it's really interesting that that moment between the psychedelic record with Mark Benno and then Delaney and Bonnie and Friends because that's sort of like a sea change that happened – and it's exemplified by, in my mind, the story where Eric Clapton is in London, he's in the cream, and somebody gives him a copy of music from Big Pink, and he puts it on, and he says to himself, what I'm doing is obsolete. This is over. And he comes to America, and he meets the band, and he's trying to get in the band. 
and they're just like, who the fuck are you? And it doesn't work. <laughs> and so, so he goes and he finds Delaney and Bonnie, you know, who are in that same vein, and he joins up with them, and that's where he meets, as you say, all the people that become the dominoes, including Jim Gordon, who is also in the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, So and, just and, and they do a whole album, Delaney and Bonnie on tour with Eric Clapton. Leon's not on that one, but yeah, I mean... Um, big, big doings. And George Harrison yeah. goes on that tour and, and it's, you know, um, it's, yeah, big, big doings. And so, but now I want you to give us a quick background about Les Blank. What had he done before that got the attention of, of, of Denny Cordell um, and Joe Cocker? Why would you pick this guy to make your rock doc? Well, he had made a bunch of really short films and he had made you know and some of them are student films and then he in the 60s uh including a, a real short film about dizzy gillespie but then he he hooks up with uh chris straywich uh and starts working more on music and i think the probably what cordell saw that made him really think this guy's what i want to do is the blues according to lightning hopkins uh, and he goes to Houston and he just spends some time with Lightning and he shoots him playing music at backyard parties and in the living room. And it's the, it's the, it's like a fully, it's like a full less blank music film like that. It, it's like the full less blank music film experience. If you want to go watch it, it's like exactly what he does. And it's a really beautiful film and it, it really gets, you get to know the artist a little bit, but there's no exposition. They're not, he's not talking to you about uh, Lightning and he's not contextualizing Lightning, which is like what you must do nowadays. You bring in rich people to tell you how this other person matters. You got Bono and Dave Grohl and. Fucking Bono. <laughs> <laughs> oh. When they put me in charge, I will outlaw him from being in any film. <laughs> you got to throw in Dave Grohl too. That'll be in my hundred days right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So the lots of blank films are a little disorienting because you're just reading what's on the screen. There's no cut to the talking head who explains what was happening or gives the backstory. There's no subtitles, nothing. It's just, you're there in the scene, seeing it. And that's not total. I mean, that's really how movies were made at that time. If you look at Bob Dylan's Don't Look Back, um, Gimme Shelter, Woodstock, uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, that's pretty much how they were all done at the time. But Les Blank is more artful and therefore a little bit more disorienting and alienating. Um, and tell us about your favorite Les Blank movie, because we're going to wrap this set, set of, of Rock Doc documentaries with our, our conversation about Chulas Fronteras. Yeah, I do think that a lot of what differentiates him from those films you were talking about is that those are still mostly concert films. And what he does mostly isn't a concert film. Uh, but yeah, Chulas Fronteras is like one of my favorite films of any kind of all time. And it has a lot to do with the fact that I'm from uh, the Rio Grande Valley, and he goes down there uh, and all along the border, both in Texas and in Mexico, uh, to make this film. And I think it's just the most beautiful movie about Texas that I've ever seen. And it's because of the way he just goes down there and he inhabits the area. He allows the people to do what they're doing, and he puts it together in a way that just uh, that just makes you proud of, 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 you know, the culture. 
and of humanity. You know, yes. like when I watch his movies, I'm just glad to be a part of it. Like he finds such amazing characters and gets such revealing moments captured on film. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Joe Cocker, The Letter, with Leon Russell on piano, live from the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. Joe Cocker backed by Leon Russell's big band doing the letter from the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. And that, you know, doing a cover of the letter or doing She Came In Through the Bathroom Window or his big hit with uh, A Little Help From My Friends, you know, or Leon Russell would sing Beatles and Bob Dylan songs too. And in the first couple of Leon Russell albums and, and all the Joe Cocker albums, and there are other people in the same vein, you know, Rod Stewart was doing this kind of stuff. Even Aretha Franklin was doing a little bit of this. There was sort of a push to do rock and roll interpretive singing, to do Frank Sinatra style. It's not the song singer-songwriter thing. It's about interpreting songs by anybody. And there was sort of this canon of songs being assembled with heavy on the Bob Dylan and the Lennon and McCartney. And, you know, Leon does some George Harrison in there too. But by the time this movie comes along, Leon's kind of moved away from that. And he's recording this album that ultimately comes out called Hank Wilson's Back, which is country covers. And he goes to Nashville. Nashville and records it. So this movie is set in several places. Les Blank is living out of this compound on a lake that where Leon's building a new house and studio on the former site of the Pappy Reeves floating motel. And from what I can tell, this is like kind of a no-tell motel on the water. <laughs> so like if you wanted to get it on in Tulsa in a very exotic setting in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you went out to Pappy Reeves floating motel. And here in the 70s, you know, Leon has taken it over. There's also concert footage from New Orleans and Anaheim. You can see Mama Cass in the audience uh, in Anaheim. Then they go to Nashville and um, catch Leon recording with uh, the Nashville A-Team. Talk about, you know, one of the few groups of session musicians who could go toe-to-toe with the Wrecking Crew. I mean, you've got the Wrecking Crew, the A-Team, the Funk Brothers in Detroit, uh, the Stax team in Memphis, the guys in Muscle Shoals, and the and the Atlantic uh, team in New York City. And that's pretty much, you know, the cream de la cream of 60s session guys. And then there's also a wedding that's shot in Leon's uh, house in Tulsa. So really exotic settings, and they intercut it wildly. They never say, we are here. You know, there's no chronological. It just... The less is just throwing things at you, but it totally adds up and, and in a cohesive narrative way. Um, tell us about this couple that works for Leon and who had worked at the Pappy Reeves Floating Motel previously. Yeah, there's this really delightful uh, sort of opening where there's this really old couple. They they must be seventy years old, and they're they ask him about Leon and the the lady starts talking about how Leon freaked her out because he had long hair and then she said, and then 
she goes on to say, but now I like it. And, and my husband's growing his hair out and I'm falling in love with him all over again. And he's sitting right next to her and he is growing his hair out. It's amazing. His hair is, is kind of long and he looks great. And it's just funny, like Leon and company came through and the people who were, you know, running the, the fishing hotel are now just kind of the caretakers, uh, but they're on board. Yeah, and and it's interesting that Les seems to be more drawn to people like that. And, you know, there's another guy who's uh, noodling for catfish. That's when you dive in the water and, and grab catfish out of holes uh, under the water with your bare hands. And, you know, there's uh, a guy who eats glass and just all kinds of real Americans from real America. And the fact that Leon and his whole rock and roll circus is – the hub that all these people are spinning around makes it really surreal. And I think it really helps Les tell the story he wants to tell, which is this collision of reality with sort of rock and roll fantasy land. And you can really see the difference between the way people are acting well, people are distracted by the cameras in a way they would not be now. Like back then when you saw a film crew, even though it was probably just one or two people, I think it was Les holding the camera and a sound man, that sort of was like moths to flame had an effect on these people. I mean, you can hear people repeatedly saying, am I on camera? Am I on TV? Am I in a movie? And we kind of take that for granted now that everybody's got a camera in their pocket and people are constantly filming. And it's occasionally you see a set that's clearly a big production because but you can tell because they've got like the the lunch van and you know 15 lighting people and they've blocked off streets but back in the day you know if you saw somebody walking around with a camera that was a big thing and Les is definitely doing doing that and and you know it's it's one of the things i really love about the movie and then because they're doing the sessions they get all these guest spots and actually the first snippet I saw from this movie was George Jones singing Take Me from this film because Mike Judge used it in um, the George Jones and Tammy Wynette episodes of Tales from the Tour Bus that we talked about a couple years ago. And, you know, apparently Leon's in Nashville recording, doing a George Jones song. George Jones walks in the studio and, you know, of course that's intimidating for Leon and they give the mic to George. He sings this beautiful rendition of Take Me. Um, has a beer in his hand, but is is definitely functional and cold sober. Just an awesome, awesome bit. And they also have some live segments from Willie Nelson playing, which I have no idea where those were from. Do you have any idea? They're just popped in there in the movie. And it's like, go on. Yeah, Willie. The the footage of Willie's at is at Flores Country Store in Helotes, just north of San Antonio, uh, and Flores is still there. It's a legendary uh, honky tonk. You know, Hank Williams and everybody played at Flores uh, down through the years, and you can still go to Flores Country Store. And I've actually seen Willie Nelson at Flores Country Store maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, but yeah, as as you can see the sign for floors in one of the the shots of Willie. And what's a, what's interesting to me about that is that there is literally no connection between 
Willie being there playing a show at Floors and anything to do with Leon Russell in this timeline, except that Leon's maybe working on a on a country record. But I certainly don't mind the footage of uh, young Willie getting it on. Yeah, no, it's it's totally, totally cool. And let's take a quick sponsor break. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the other singers who have guest spots. And there's somebody in there who should be in there, but I didn't see. And I want to ask you if you saw him. But let's hear from our sponsor. Willie Nelson appears in there just as a total non sequitur, but it fits in beautifully and, and, and certainly not complaining there. It's right before he grows his beard, but his hair's already getting longer. And, you know, George Jones is there in the Nashville set, and you've got, you know, Johnny Gimble and all these other A-list. Uh, Charlie McCoy is is there. But J.J. Kale produced that album. Did you see J.J. Kale in there anywhere? I didn't spot J.J., and I'm a big, big fan of J.J. Kale, so I was looking yeah. And so, you know, some guys just get real elusive when cameras pop up. And I guess J.J. Kale was in that category. Um, and the other two singers that, that have featured spots that are not Leon or in Leon's band is this guy Eric Anderson comes in and has a really painfully awkward conversation with Leon and then gets to do a song yeah, this that part is, was yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it's just cringe city, and and tell us about it. <laughs> it's absolutely cringe city, and it's kind of, you know, in some ways, it's the climax of less telling the story about how full of shit all these people are, because these guys are just fronting on each other and trying to like, you know, have some kind of conversation about, you know music and people and treating each other or whatever. And it's just, it's all horseshit, you know? And it's, it's like you said, it's so cringy and you just feel really embarrassed for everybody involved, especially Eric Anderson, since he goes on to be somebody, we have no idea who the fuck he is, uh, <laughs> but he's, you know, pretty sure he thinks he knows who he is in this moment. And it's, it's just, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, Eric Anderson was a guy who was like, in the Greenwich Village scene a little after Bob Dylan. So he's kind of in the wake of Bob Dylan, in the wake of Phil Oaks and other people like that. Made a little headway, you know, did a number of sort of folk albums. I think he did a folk rock album in there. And it's pretty clear that he's being brought in to pitch Leon's songs. That Denny Cordell thinks, you know, Leon's a little dry on material. That's why they're doing this country album. That's why, you know, half of the Carney album is basically sort of side, psychedelic studio experiments. And they're bringing this guy in to pitch Leon on songs. And he walks in and is immediately snippy about, hey, hey, Leon, can you come cut that organ part of my song and interrupts the film shoot and the conversation and Leon pushes back and then they get into it. And Eric makes this like grievous faux pas where he says, you know, how old are you? Like 38, 42 or whatever. And Leon really takes offense and is, you know, like, you don't know me that well. And your daddy's a punk like <laughs> 48 you know i'm barely 30 he, he has the gray hair but he's you know only 30 years old and yeah so eric anderson digs himself in a deep hole doesn't get any of his songs on any leon russell albums to my knowledge does get a song featured in this but that you know did him no favors it reminds me very much of the way bob dylan toyed with donovan and don't look back but you don't get the feeling like Leon's toying with the guy. It's more like the guy's coming into Leon's house and making an ass of himself. So it's, um, you know, very strange and very uncomfortable. And then the last guy who comes in 
during the closing credits, he's not quite the last song, but very close, is Willis Allen Ramsey, who's I so I associate him with Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and that school of neo uh, national country songwriters that came along in the 70s and kind of made a big impact in the 80s. And Leon produced one Allen album on Willis Allen, and they had you know just a brutal falling out. Apparently, Willis Allen was one of these guys who could not be pleased with the recording and production process. So it's kind of interesting that he has both of these guys that have these bad relationships with Leon. And of course, Les is going to go on to have this bad relationship with Leon. Denny Cordell is going to go on to have this bad relationship with Leon. So, so uh, you know, it's interesting. But the Willis Allen Ramsey song, I thought was quite good and fit in. The Eric Anderson song wasn't really my cup of tea. And I didn't feel like it fit in with the movie, which was, I thought, kind of the point. But any thoughts on Willis Allen Ramsey and how he fits into this whole circus? Yeah, well, like you said, Willis Allen is legit. Like he he is real deal singer songwriter, and and everybody respected him. Uh, but yeah, he he couldn't ever quite get it done to like get over. And you know, as is as you mentioned, it might have a lot to do with his own. Uh, you know, he might have blazed fully himself, or or what have you. Just like not really done himself uh, all the favors he could have over over time. Yeah, I mean, did the one album and was basically out. Um, ultimately, um, I had quite a – I mean, he wrote Muskrat Love for Captain and Tennille, so that must have been enough money to retire on, you yeah. know, like, especially if you're Willis Allen Ramsey, you yeah. know, and you've been sleeping under pool tables next to Towns Van Zandt or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, so – and had a number of other songs that got covered. So he had a pretty successful career as a songwriter, although never really as a performer. But, you know, that kind of brings up these themes that that um, Les weaves around the movie. I mean, we already talked about the caretaker couple. He spends a lot of time talking to Jim Franklin, who, you know, old Austin heads will know is the Armadillo World Headquarters poster artist. There's this great scene of Jim Franklin scooping scorpions out of this swimming pool into a glass jar you know not hurting the scorpions and and talking babbling this hippie nonsense about you know people should paint their own houses and stuff and and then paints this amazing psychedelic mural that you know they they cut shots of him painting it and then pretty soon you see the thing and and the thing about this whole movie I'm a Gen Xer. I was the age of these babies that you see in the Mad Dog and Englishman tour that are, you know, basically watching their mom snort coke in the plane. And so I've always just been really allergic to hippie babble because I heard a little bit of it as a kid. My family wasn't even hippies, but I was around it just a little bit. And so my initial reaction whenever Jim Franklin starts babbling or when Les Blanks and Leon Russell have this one conversation about the unknown – I immediately just dismiss it and laugh at it. But when I watch this movie over and over again, actually everything everybody was saying was pretty on point, at least Jim Franklin and Leon Russell. There's a couple of wannabes uh, who say just ridiculous nonsense. But I, I was in the wrong to write off Jim Franklin as babbling hippie nonsense is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. What was your take on that, on those conversations and the, the heaviosity I I love heaviosity. I do think that Les was purposely making fun of the heaviosity a little bit. I think he was 
who was sort of putting it in there as sort of, and, and like I said, it sort of, you know, peaks with this Eric Anderson, like, you know, big dick contest, but it's all about like, these people are like always on and always like profound and always whatever. Right. And, and it's just, you know, this, this sort of penchant for like, for deep talk for, and hippie bullshit, as you said. And I think when, when you compare it, when you contrast it to his other films, I think it sort of shows how he felt about the whole scene, even though he was right there in it. And in my mind, even maybe asking leading questions, trying to get Leon or some of these other guys to battle some stupid shit. Yeah, that one conversation is half less blanks for sure. Um, but let's go ahead and hear a little bit more. This is Leon Russell from the uh, George Harrison Bangladesh concert. So this is talk about heavy Austin, which is a Woody Allen thing, but I got to credit him there. But I mean, you know, you're talking Leon Russell on stage with George Harrison, Bob Dylan at the absolute biggest concert of 1971. And here he is doing a cover of Jumpin' Jack Flash. She said real slow, real soft, real sweet. She said this right here. And that was Liam Russell from George Harrison's live at Bangladesh or concert for Bangladesh, not live from Bangladesh concert for Bangladesh concert doing uh, a gospel song and then segue into the jumping Jack flash. And I think that really gets to the heart of what Leon Russell and Delaney and Bonnie and others were bringing is this real, not just knowledge of American roots music, but, they inhabited American roots music. They grew up on it. I mean, you know, Leon Russell references the Church of God in Christ, which is where he grew up going to church. And, and you know, when Leon Russell's bringing the gospel sound, he's bringing the gospel sound. He's not bringing his interpretation of the gospel sound, you know. And gospel was something that the British rockers didn't even have any familiarity with at all. You know, the blues came over, rhythm of blues comes over, American pop and rock and roll come over. But to my knowledge, not much gospel had made it over there. So when Leon and these other guys start doing the call and response and the gospel style piano and the, and the multiple, you know, core choruses or backup singers, it really brought a new element into rock and roll at the time. And then he's doing covers of songs like Jumpin' Jack Flash, which was, you know, absolutely state-of-the-art heavy rock at the time so it was uh cutting edge stuff at the time and um you know talking about les blank and his his view there's this one scene there's two scenes where he really pushes the metaphor hard there's one where they show a building being d demolished in tulsa and people are picking souvenirs out of the rubble and he intercuts it with scenes of leon being asked for autograph and a lot of these girls want kisses so i want leon to kiss him backstage and blank is just obviously parallel you know comparing the two you know that, that they're sort of picking the the corpse of leon and and, the, and he asked him this question um can you tell dreams from reality or is there a difference between dreams and reality and leon you know can, 
you can just tell Leon can tell he's being put on or, or called out or whatever. And he says, you know, I believe there is, I believe there is. And it's real interesting watching, like you mentioned the criterion collection, like they've got less blank son talking to Leon and it really seems like Leon has a healthy had towards the end of his life, had a healthy perspective on the whole rock and roll thing. Like he basically had walked away from it in the mid seventies and took the eighties and nineties off more or less. And seems like he either kept or regained his sanity, but you can really get a feel for how insane the scene was. And then there's the wannabes who are just crazed and scary. Yeah. The, some of the sort of scenes with like the full entourage are a little cringy too. Cause it's just like, there's just these, all these people and they're just all sort of like, behaving in what I guess they they think of as like the correct way to behave when you're part of some big rock and roll party or whatever. And and he's he specifically shows some real dumb behavior here and there. And and the whole thing is just a little bit much. Yeah. Like there's one guy in a hotel room where they're partying who's basically doing an Iggy Stooge act in the hotel room. Like he's young and muscled and lithe and it's just writhing around and thrashing around. And it's like, you know, I don't know who gave him STP or what. <laughs> but, but the kid is is clearly scared and scaring everybody else. And then there's, you know, the metaphor that the visual metaphor that probably got Les Blank's film canned is Jim Franklin feeding a baby chick to his snake while he's babbling about, you know, something about survival. And it's intercut with the security team at the Anaheim concert having their pregame pep talk and then pulling people out of the crowd to be arrested. And then the cops not letting the camera crew follow and see where those arrested people are going. So it's really making just sort of this obvious parallel, like the, the music industry or the police state is eating our little chicks. Um, what was your take when you first saw, I mean, as soon as you see the baby chicken and the snake, you know where this is going. How did you react to that? Well, I didn't like it. You know, I didn't want to watch that snake eat that baby chick. But then again, I've watched plenty of nature shows and, and you know, I'm from the country. I It didn't really, like, hurt my feelings a lot. But I was kind of like, man, I could do without watching this. And then, yeah, the whole sort of – there were, like, two sort of messages there. One was the, like – you know, the snake being, like you said, the snakes in the business and the cops. And then there was this other sort of thing that, that Jim Franklin was talking about, which is about like, you know, consumption. And like, if we're smart, we're like the snake and we only eat what we need, but we're not smart. And we just consume and consume and consume beyond all bounds of reason. And that again is a little bit points towards the excess of the music industry and the sort of current excesses that are going on with Leon and retinue. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not the, like, like you say, you can see this stuff on the discovery channel or on YouTube anytime you want to. It's not especially horrific, but there is, you know, baby chick feet sticking out of the snake's mouth. when He's got his child disjointed. And, uh, you know, so it's it's pretty heavy. Um, but let's go ahead and hear our last last song. This is Leon Russell in Nashville. This is from his album, Hank Wilson's Back. This is doing Lester Flats rolling in my sweet baby's arms. 
That's Leon Russell and the National A team doing Roll of My Sweet Baby Baby's Arms by Lester Flat. And, uh, you know, I want to go back and ask some of my country heads, like, what did they think of that Leon Russell album? Because, like, I, I went back and listened to it, too. And to me, it's really solid country, although Leon's voice is not... It's just not a traditional voice in any way, shape, or form. He's got a powerful voice. He's got confidence. But he sings kind of like he's an old man. You imagine somebody just sort of aged and wizened uh, when, when you hear his voice. And it was not a hit album. I don't know if they even tried to market it to the country audience. But that and then the next album he did with the Gap Band called Stop All That Jazz, which was sort of his attempt to to do a jazz album, basically. Those two albums pretty well put the kibosh on Leon Russell as a solo star. He was still a big concert draw. He did a, a tri- another triple album, Leon Live, which, you know, triple albums, I think you could probably do a chart of every rocker who put out a triple album and their record sales declining in the aftermath as <laughs> they were more expensive and just long. I mean, who listens to a triple album? You know, and it's just sort of the definition of 70s bloat. And that was another thing for me as a sort of punk rock kid and a, and a Beatles and Kinks fans. I, I liked that little combo thing. And whenever I saw an act come on Saturday Night Live with saxophones and background singers and two keyboards, I was just like, I didn't even want to hear it. So my ears were closed to Leon Russell really until like the last two or three years. How did you get into Leon? What was your experience and first exposure to Leon Russell? Well, I had heard Leon sort of here and there, you know, and I was, I hadn't gone and like really dug into his records, uh, honestly, until, the movie until I saw, I saw there was a Les Blank movie and it was coming out and I started getting real curious and I started digging into it and I was aware that he was a member of the wrecking crew. And I, so I was already kind of like, you know, anybody who's in the wrecking crew and then goes on to have a solo career, I just think, okay, something's obviously there. Uh, so that's when I went back and listened to, uh, you know, his self-titled record and Carney, which I think are, you know, kind of the, the two mostly on Russell, Leon Russell records. Uh, <clears throat> and I had seen him, you know, I had watched all kinds of clips from uh, the concert for Bangladesh, you know, and I would see him and be, oh, that's Leon Russell, you know. He was always just kind of peeking around places. Yeah, and, and he's very visually striking. I mean, um, he just absolutely had the look, the baseball jerseys with the, the custom – lettering which was a big deal in the 70s and the top hat and the shades and and just really had a striking look and um you know i can relate i can understand now better how fresh and exciting he must have seemed in like 69 70 71 uh 72 and when he when he blew up so big and he talked about that one of the interviews with uh harold blank less son you know that he went to the pre premiere of Mad Dogs and the Englishman in London with 3,000 people in the theater. And he said, I walked in, I'm just a session guy. And I walk out and all 3,000 pairs of eyes are on me. And that experience, you know, is by all accounts, very searing of, of sudden fame. And he's somebody who really built up to it over a period of time, but it was still um, obviously, uh, you know, 
had an impact on him and 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 freaked him out. But it, it's also interesting to me that he one of the other themes of it is that he sort of assembled the circle of artists around him. He he creates this space in Tulsa, and this is just a couple years after Easy Rider. So hippies and freedom riders have been getting killed in the South, you know, all through the sixties and, and obviously black people have been getting killed in the South since the beginning of American history. And yet Leon's able to carve out this little oasis where he can be freaky. Somebody like Jim Franklin can be freaky. Les Blank can be freaky. Eric Anderson can come in and be cringy and freaky. And, you know, George Jones can come in too. And, and, and Willie and, and, and it's, I think Leon was a big part of kicking off that cosmic cowboy vibe. Like if you read histories of the Austin scene, when Doug Somm and Willie Nelson and, and others started playing in Austin and drawing these mixed crowds of, of hippies and rednecks, Leon Russell was one of the big draws of the Armadillo World, World Headquarters. And he was one of the big gets for Willie's early picnics. And I think that's a reason Willie did the duet album with Leon in 1979, which is kind of Leon's last big hurrah. And I can also remember that was another, that was probably my first exposure to Leon. It was one of my brothers was a big Willie Nelson fan. I can remember going through the albums and here's this album of Willie and this dude with a big beard and big long hair. And I was just, you know, had no idea who the guy was, but I figured he must've been somebody, but that wasn't one of the Willie Nelson albums I put on. And actually I haven't even listened to it. I need to go back and listen to that one and, and see, cause that's, that's, that's a grievous oversight. Have you checked out that Willie and Leon album? Yeah, I listened to it. I, I dig it. I dig it. And yeah, I think it's really interesting to me that, you know, Leon inhabits this space where, you know, like I mentioned the band having such an impact in England. And then at the same time in California, the whole folk rock thing and then country rock thing is happening. And a couple of things go a couple of ways, right? California kind of goes the Eagles. And then you've got Leon who goes back to Oklahoma and does his thing. And it's from his thing that, like you said, sort of like Waylon and Willie and stuff can sort of like, it's, it's a little more organic. It's a little more down to earth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a big contrast, but yeah, I like LA had Emily Harris who crosses over into country, but, but the, yeah, it is interesting how that whole Delaney and Bonnie crowd who had been making their living and making their bones in LA go to England and, and tour the world and, and become big rock stars and stay out of the country scene, even though they make country records or Leon does at least, um, but just aren't assimilated into, into that and definitely are not part of the mid seventies country rock explosion. But let's run through our recommended listening list. Like I had to put Gary Lewis in the Playboy's legendary master series. Um, it's not the most sterling work Leon did as a member of the wrecking crew. Like I said, he's on the birds tambourine man. He's on a bunch of Frank Sinatra's big hits. He's on pet sounds. Um, he's on a number of Phil Spector's biggest hits. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to pick out exactly. You could probably put together a best of Leon Russell and the wrecking crew compilation. That would be just absolutely some of the best music of the 20th century. 
but Gary Lewis and the Playboys was his first gig as a, an associate producer and a band leader. And he got some songwriting credits. Like he co-wrote um, Everybody Loves a Clown. <laughs> you know? so, nice. so Yeah. So, you know, I, I have a real fondness for I don't know. My only guilty pleasures is things like Gary Lewis and the Playboys, where I'm just laughing and cackling the whole time. I can't believe this. But if you listen to the backing tracks, it's state of the art Wrecking Crew '60s stuff. Um, uh, Snuff Garrett, I think, was was the the man in charge, and and that's the guy who had been one of the first people to patronize Leon as a session guy. You know, records by Bobby V and and Buddy Knox, um, and that kind of stuff. Snuff Garrett was the big man at Liberty Records. Uh, Johnny Burnett also and then goes on to work with Sonny and Cher and Cher's solo career and Gary Lewis was oddly enough kind of a jewel in his crown and then and then the first two Delaney and Bonnie and Friends Home which was on Stax Records so that's a really interesting record if you're into session guys because it's literally the wrecking crew meets um Booker T and the MGs. You got Al Jackson, Steve Cropper, Duck Dunn playing on that record and Leon Russell and, and the and the Delaney and Bonnie band and then Accept Enough Substitute, which is the second record Delaney and Bonnie and Friends put out. I'd say both the Asylum Choir albums are highly recommended, the first one especially. And like you said, I should probably put that one first before Delaney and Bonnie because you get the psychedelic Leon, you get the pop Leon, then the psychedelic Leon, then the sort of roots rock Leon. And then Joe Cocker, he's on the Joe Cocker exclamation point album. And then he's on the Mad Dogs and Englishman album. Both of those are really good. If you're into British rock uh, from that period at all, both of those are solid. And then the Leon solo albums, Leon Russell, Leon Russell and the Shelter People, Carney. And Carney's one I was really pleasantly surprised by. I hadn't checked that one out until we prepared for this show because it was always written off as kind of this is his commercial apex and where the rot sets in. Cause by his own admission, he kind of ran out of songwriting mojo and half the album is kind of written off as psychedelic, uh, mishmash. I found that to be one of my favorite albums though, um, by, by Leon. And, and then there's the two kind of weird ones, Hank Wilson's back, the country album, and then, uh, stop all that jazz with the gap band. And then Leon live, Leon Live, I don't know. What's your take on Leon Live? I, I probably prefer Mad Dogs and Englishman to that one, and it's a lot of albums. Yeah. I you know, I would I'm more likely to listen to Mad Dogs and Englishman or your next pick concert for Bangladesh, because they're just they're awesome live records and you get plenty of of real interesting people, including Leon. Yeah, it's a good mix. And yeah, and he's he's all over the concert for Bangladesh, which is another triple album uh, live concert thing. The digital era makes it so much easier. Uh, you know, it's not heavy. <laughs> it doesn't it's not it's not all that big and you can just cut it off. You can make your own playlist and edit it down. So it's it's much more palatable. So any final thoughts about Leon Russell, Les Blank and a poem as a naked person? Well, I think everyone should watch it. Uh, it's an extremely interesting movie, and it's extremely it's, – it's just so much different. If you like rock documentaries, but you find yourself weary of the format, come watch this film and just let your mind unspool – and I swear to God, it's worth it. Yeah, there's no Dave Grohl. And this is kind of a wrench to throw at you at the last second, but 
What do you think would have happened if this movie had come out in 1974? I think it would have played at some. Uh, it would have played at some film festivals. I think some critics would have really hated it. I think mo- I think critically, it would not have been well received by mainstream critics if it came out when it came out. I think the reason that the critics are accepting it now is because it's had some time to season. Leon is now a total, you know, legend, as is less in his way in the in the filmmaking world. And so nobody's gonna like throw rocks at it now. But I think if it had come out then, it may not have been extremely well received by mainstream press and the rock and roll press either. Yeah, I, I think it probably would have damaged Leon's career even more um, than the the country album and the jazz album and the triple live album did. So yeah, it, from purely hard-headed business approach, I think Leon probably made the right call in holding it back. But I'm so happy that Les's son got it out there and, and talked Leon into into greenlighting it and and working out all the music rights and everything because yeah this really does capture a unique moment in music history and it's also an actual legit film this is film this is cinema and it's really good so justin i've really enjoyed uh talking about this movie with you and looking forward to coming back next time we're going to talk about another movie that's still unreleased and i'm talking about the mc5 a true testimonial Ooh, that's a good one. Indeed. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at the hard-to-find documentary MC5, A True Testimonial. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. Uh-huh.